tempo of the afternoon program now. Um, owing to the fact that today is uh, the Thai Cultural Festival. And Thailand is a country where there are many um, people who follow the Buddhist teachings and you might say call themselves Buddhists. They've invited myself to come and give some teachings, um, some explanation or introduction to the Buddhist path, uh, the Buddhist path of practice. The Buddha, as many of you will know, lived in India over 2,500 years ago born into a royal family, one of the governing families of northern India at that time. So he was brought up as a young prince. His parents believed that he would probably be, inherit the, uh, the kingdom that they ruled and become a ruler of one of these small kingdoms in, in northern India at the time. But as he was growing up, like many of us, many of us, he started to have some doubts, some um, concern, maybe, as to what the purpose of life is, why we are born into this world. Um, you might say the meaning of life, what it is, and that led him to first of all think about the the situation we have as human beings. He started to notice that. Um, although there are many pleasant experiences we have as human beings, many good things in life, he also noticed that there are, what you might say, some imperfections in our life. And the most obvious ones were he started to notice around him that there were some people who fall sick from time to time. We all get sick before we ill. Everybody gets older with time. And sooner or later we have to face death. Now this was the first realization he had as a young man that led him to inquire further as to the purpose of life or this meaning of life. Is this all that we can expect as human beings, the fact that we're, we're going to meet with old age, sickness and death? This led him to inquire, to think, is there anything beyond old age, sickness and death in life. Um, this led him to leave his palace, the place where he lived, go out into the forest and to start practicing meditation. So many people see that meditation and Buddhism very much go together, but it's hard to describe exactly what Buddhism is, whether it's just a um, religion, or philosophy, a way of life, or you could say maybe um, a way of learning about life, a way of educating ourselves about life. The way that education or that learning has to progress, has to develop through uh, inquiring more deeply into these truths, you know, why we're here, what is the meaning of life, why were we born, when we die, what happens, 
when we die, is that just the end of it? Do we, uh, does it just finish there? Uh, is there anything after death? Is there anything before birth? And where did we come from before we were born? And also how to live our life in a way that can bring us happiness, true happiness. These are the kind of questions that the Buddha had in his mind that led him to go out into the forest to pursue a, a spiritual path. It wasn't because he had any particular suffering, he wasn't pressured into doing that. He actually had a very wealthy background. He had plenty of happiness at home. He had literally wealth, money, he had power, prestige, status, what you might say, all the good things in life. So there was no actual need for him to go out into the forest other than his own inquiring mind, interested to answer these more deeper questions about the, the meaning of life. Anyway, he went out into the forest and he studied with some of the leading spiritual teachers of the day in India. But even then he found that they didn't, um, although they, they could teach him how to meditate, how to live very peacefully and skillfully, how to meditate and make his mind very, very quiet and peaceful. He still wasn't satisfied with the, the practice that he, he did with those teachers. They didn't bring his, or help him to bring his mind to complete peace, or what you might say, the complete end of suffering. So. In the end he went off leaving those teachers and went off on his own, decided he'd have to practice for himself, find out for himself um, the way to a peaceful mind, to experience a peaceful mind. And it was through going off on his own, practicing, investigating, coming to understand the nature of his own mind, uh, the way Suffering arises in our minds, how, how we come caught into stress, how we come caught into suffering from time to time. Understanding that, understanding what its cause is, and understanding what the remedy is, that he came to an experience that we call enlightenment. An experience of, you might say, lasting or permanent peace of mind, permanent happiness, or permanent freedom from suffering. And this is the goal of the Buddhist path, then what you might say is the experience of enlightenment that the Buddha um, realized for himself. And that's what led him to start teaching other people in India all those years ago. He spent 45 years uh, walking around northern India, in those days walking barefoot, there's no vehicles. But living as a monk in the forests of northern India, he walked barefoot from place to place, teaching people literally how to be more peaceful in themselves, how to be more at peace with the world, how to understand the world better so that they can be peaceful and happy. And perhaps it's a testament to how wise he was, how skillful his teachings were that they're still with us today, preserved both in um, texts, books, but also in a living tradition, uh, the Buddhist 
a religion which is practiced in many parts of the world and even here in Australia. So this is how the, the Buddhist path develops. It's a, it's a path of self-inquiry, learning to recognize and understand in one's own mind better where the suffering arises and how to remedy it. We can see from time to time in our life we probably all have periods where we get caught into different kinds of stress, unhappiness. Um, sometimes we get worried, sometimes afraid, sometimes angry and so on. And these are experiences that we have as human beings. Even when we live in a peaceful country like Australia, it's a wealthy country, there's relatively little um, poverty or material difficulty in a country like Australia. And yet still you can find that many, many people in Australia still suffer from uh, stress and unhappiness of different kinds. How does that arise? Well, the Buddha's answer from his own experience was that, well, we do it to ourselves. We, any unhappiness we experience in life, we tend to create ourselves. Perhaps through, you could say, through misunderstanding truth. Not understanding the true way, nature of the way things are it means that we often find ourselves caught into states of suffering where our mind is out of sync with reality and not in line with reality. The Buddha's word for this is that the mind gets caught into states of called craving, uh, craving and attachment, uh, based on misunderstanding of truth. So what is craving? Well it's that experience in the mind where we often we want something that we haven't got. We have a sense of feeling of lack, something is lacking in our life and we want something more. Or the feeling of insecurity, the things that we've got, we don't want to lose. Or sometimes it's things we don't want, experiences and things that we don't want coming to us that we want to get rid of. But there are these different kinds of craving and attachment that we experience as human beings over and over again through our lives. And this is something we have to learn to recognize first. Obviously it's not just a, a theory to believe in. Uh, it's something, it's a teaching to, to reflect on that the Buddha was talking about. So this is a path of practice of self-inquiry, of learning to look more closely at one's own experience of life to see where, how suffering arises. So the best vehicle that the Buddha taught, the best tool or method that the Buddha taught to do this is the development of the quality we call mindfulness, mindful awareness, which is simply that ability to know what you're doing in the present moment. It's a quality that we all have as human beings, it's nothing uh, strange or unusual. We all have a basic level of mindful awareness in daily life. We must have, because to do the things that we have to do, we have to be able to use our mind to concentrate. Even do, to do something as simple as to tie your shoelace, you need to be able to hold your attention on your fingers as you're tying your shoelace on your shoe before you go out anywhere when you put a pair of shoes on. 
But that takes uh, mindful awareness to do that. You know, to drive a car, to walk down the street, to do pretty much anything you do in life, you need some awareness and basic awareness. So this quality of mindful awareness is nothing that we don't have, it's nothing and beyond our ability as human beings. But it is something that can um, in increase or diminish according to how we use our mind. And so what the Buddha found through his own practice is that those periods of time where our mindfulness becomes less, when we're less aware of ourselves and what we're doing, we start to suffer more we fall into an experience of stress or unhappiness more because of the, the lack of mindfulness. Whereas at times where our mindful awareness improves um, through our own efforts, through our own practice and training, well our experience of suffering and stress tends to diminish. So you'll find um, any, any Buddhist teacher will tend to emphasize this practice of mindful awareness in daily life, developed uh, on an ongoing basis. This quality of mindful awareness needs to be developed by training, training the mind to focus on certain things and most importantly to focus the mind on that which you might say is positive or wholesome or good in life. So the Buddhist path begins with the practice of uh, generosity and just learning to um, recognize the value, see the value of practicing generosity in daily life and bring, bringing mindful awareness to bear on that practice. Why is that? Well if you practice, ever practice generosity in your life and you become mindful as you're practicing that generosity, how do you feel at that time? you start to feel more positive, more content, more happy in your, your mind as an experience. It's the opposite of when we're perhaps being more selfish or unkind in life. If you notice when you're selfish and unkind, you, you don't feel good at that time. As you practice generosity, whether it's just being kind to your family or friends, to people around you, you're being uh, more positive in society, when you bring your mind to do that, well how do you feel? You start to feel good in yourself. It gives you good memories, gives you good positive mental states. So the very beginning of Buddhist practice is, it comes with generosity. And this isn't anything peculiar just to Buddhists, obviously. This is something we're practicing in our daily life anyway, but perhaps we haven't fully realized it or developed it yet. And just to live in the world, we have to have a certain amount of generosity. Like any family in any part of the world requires generosity by those, the members of that family for that family to be successful. Parents have to be generous to their children in the sense they have to give up their time, their effort, their energy to raise and look after their children. Children have to be generous to their parents. As we live together in a family, for that family to be successful, we all have to share. We have to share in, say, looking after the place we live. Sometimes we share in earning an income. We share in doing many, many different things in a family. 
So the very beginning of our lives begins with generosity, doesn't it? And society requires generosity to function. So just like today, an event like today, this, this event in uh, Federation Square came about through generosity in the sense that many, many volunteers who came together to give up their time to put on this event, seeing that it's uh, something useful to help bring some of the good things of Thai culture to put on display and show for the people of Melbourne. Um, but it, this all came about through generosity. Nobody um, they paid or asked those volunteers to come. They did it through their own, good, their own goodness of their heart. And they had to put effort to do that, many days of effort. These are just two examples of how we, we are actually practicing generosity in our daily life. But you'll notice whenever you do practice generosity or when you perform acts of charity and kindness towards others, do favours for other people, whether it's friends or strangers, what is the result? The result is your mind starts to feel quite good, feels quite happy. That can be on the material level, just learning to share what you have with other people. It can also be on a more subtle level. We, we say generosity of heart, or charity of heart. That can just be developing an open-mindedness towards, uh, towards other people, towards other cultures, other religions, other groups of people in, in the world who you maybe are not familiar with, but developing a sense of open-mindedness towards them. Developing charity of heart towards those who are less fortunate than us, perhaps those who are poor or sick or in need in some way. Generosity of heart maybe towards those who we would not normally wish to be generous towards, people who have very might say opposed views to our, us, different views, different ways of doing things in life, uh, different to us. To live peacefully with people like that requires generosity of heart, doesn't it? If you live in a society and that society is made up of many groups of people with opposing political views and so on, now in order to be able to live together peacefully, we have to have a certain generosity of heart tolerance towards each other. All of this comes from our own mind, our own heart, and seeing the value of that, developing uh, an openness of mind, a charity of mind. Or sometimes it's just more close to home. Um, generosity of heart towards the people who live in our own family, or the people we live with and see every day, people we work with. Often we find it difficult to be generous to the people we're closest to because often we living together there's friction, isn't it? We rub against each other sometimes. We sometimes compete for the same space, for the same things. We sometimes have different views and opinions, so we rub up against each other. So if you're going to learn to live together peacefully in your family or your workplace, you need generosity, kindness of heart. Uh, you need to be able to forgive the people around you when we do have different opinions, different ways of doing things, or sometimes we inadvertently hurt each other. 
All of this requires generosity of heart and that's not always easy to do. So the Buddha's teaching here was how was to be aware how do we uh, bring this quality up and so we need this quality of mindful awareness of our own um, mind and heart to see where where we may be lacking generosity and charity of heart, where maybe we're lacking forgiveness, these kind of qualities. So we need to be able to turn around and look at ourselves more closely. So the whole of the Buddhist path, the Buddhist teachings is learning how to look more closely at one's own heart and to see where one needs to improve and develop oneself in this more uh, skillful or positive way. And that's not always easy. At first, sometimes when we look at our own mind, our own heart, it's not always a pretty sight. <laughs> I know when I first practiced um, meditation and started to become more aware of the way I thought, some of my attitudes, some of my views on things, I started to cringe a little bit looking at my own mind and seeing the way it was. And I started to ask myself, when I became more, more aware of myself, I started to ask, well, how on earth could I ever think like that or act in that way? So we have to be a little bit strong. We have to be willing to really look at our own mind and see what needs to be done, what needs to be improved. One of the ways they describe the Buddha, they, they call him the peaceful chief of conquerors. Nowadays, mostly when we refer to somebody being a conqueror, we refer to them as being a conqueror in terms of somebody who defeats somebody else either in politics or sports or even maybe in a war. But when they referred to the Buddha as a peaceful chief of conqueror, what they meant was he's somebody who learned to conquer his own mind or tame his own mind, overcome some of these more negative, unskillful qualities which cause each and every one of us suffering. Um, the reason they call him a conqueror is because he was willing to take the time, take the effort to look more closely at his own mind and work with it work with it to develop this kind of skill, the developing mindful awareness to really root out some of those more negative states of mind that cause us suffering, to recognize them and be willing to abandon them, let them go, not to hold on to them. And you notice that's quite hard to do sometimes. If somebody, say particularly in a situation where somebody's maybe hurt your feelings or done something bad towards you, wronged you in some way, you know, to practice forgiveness, to forget, to let go, and not to hold on to anger, very difficult. This is where these Buddhist teachings perhaps are most valuable in, in helping to bring our minds to a sense of inner peace. It's, it's learning to right some of the wrongs that we find in our own minds and hearts. But that requires some bravery, just like a, a soldier going out to war has to be quite brave, they might be putting their life at stake. Or similarly, practicing mindfulness, observing, learning about your own mind also requires some bravery. Because as I said, we don't always like what we find when we first look. 
as human beings we have lived in the world for many many years and some of the things we've accumulated in, in our mind, some of the mental baggage is not always so pretty. So we have to have a very caring attitude when we come to look at our mind. We have to see that our mind is perhaps the most precious resource that we have, it's the most important thing we have. Anything you do in life begins first with your mind, it begins with a thought. The quality of your thinking determines what you say, what you do in life. And so if we can see the value of looking after our mind, we can see that the most precious resource we have in life is actually our own mind. Then we'll have the right kind of quality for approaching this, uh, this practice of learning how to free our mind from suffering and the kind of stress and negativity that causes us so much problems in life. You think about it, you know, before you do anything in life, first of all you have to have a thought, don't you? Say this building, this large building we're sitting in here, they call the, uh, the Edge, the BMW Edge. A very um, large, well-built, well-designed building, uh, quite complicated. It wasn't easy to, to design or build this building, I would imagine. So it must have required a lot of thought first to go into it, to design all the architecture. Somebody didn't just come along and build it just like that, they had to think about it, think how it could be built and then put those thoughts down on paper, give instructions and finally the building came up. That's just an example of how every day in our life we have to use our mind, don't we? If you use your mind well, then it can do many great things. We can build a very beautiful building, a very useful, successful building. Anything we do in life, if we put our minds to it and use our minds well, well, we can be quite successful. So when you come to practice meditation or the development of mindful awareness, this is the kind of attitude you need. You need, you need that um, recognition of the value of your own mind. To see that the most important thing you have in your life is, is your own mind. It's something you really have to look after take care of. If we neglect it, well it's like everything else in life. If you neglect anything in life, that, that, will, that thing will start to degenerate and run into problems. If you have a building like this, if you don't keep it clean and well maintained, well maybe one day it will just fall down or certainly it won't look very nice, it won't be nice to use. Or if you have a garden, say a garden in your house, if you don't look after that garden, well gradually it will become full of weeds, become very messy, after a while it won't be a pleasant place to be. Well similarly our own mind is just the same. If we don't see the value of looking after our mind, taking care of it in the right way, well it becomes weedy, it becomes uh, dirty, it becomes uh, poorly maintained, Maybe it will even collapse like a building that's poorly maintained, it will just fall apart and be useless. Even our own mind can become that way if we're not careful and take the time to look after it. So the Buddhist teachings are just one skillful way that gives us many techniques, strategies, ways and methods to look after our mind better. And the, the foremost 
technique is this technique we're learning to develop mindful awareness to look back at our own minds, look back at our own speech, our own behaviour, how we live in this world and start to determine the, the qualities, the states of mind that lie behind everything we do in life. The way we think, to recognise and look at our, our mind and see, well the way I'm thinking, is this really skillful for my benefit, for the benefit of others? Or is it perhaps less skillful, is it really uh, being careless here and letting my mind go in ways that's actually causing me suffering or leads to me, me to act or behave in ways that cause other people suffering? So this is the most basic teaching that the Buddha gave. Um, you probably are familiar with it, uh, with the word karma. The Buddha taught us to learn about karma and how it affects us all the time. So like every day in our life we act, don't we? we do things, we go places, we do things, we use our mind in different ways, we speak in different ways, we act in different ways. But the state of mind that lies behind all that activity is what, we, what, what formulates or determines what, what we call karma. Normally we talk about good karma and bad karma. Good karma, bad karma, literally refers to the intention, the intention in your mind, the quality of the intention, whether it's skillful or unskillful. And that's also determined by the results that come back to us. What we do in our life comes back to us. If you think uh, a skillful thought, a positive thought, it will bring you one result, probably bring you a sense of um, good, uh, a good feeling, feeling of happiness, contentment within yourself. If you think a negative thought, it starts to bring you a sense of unhappiness an experience of unhappiness. If you speak in a good way, a skillful way, a beneficial way, it brings you one result, one kind of result. If you speak in a negative way, an unskillful way, it will bring you an unpleasant result. Similarly, if you act in a skillful way, it brings you a good result. Or if you act in an unskillful way, it brings you an unpleasant result, suffering. This is the basic teaching on karma. There's cause and there's result, cause and effect, which is going on all the time in our life, whether we're realizing it or not. But the way you can come to understand it better is through observing yourself on a daily basis. You observe the, the things you do more closely, the way you think, the way you speak, the way you act, and start noticing the, the results that are coming from what you do. All of us can probably stop, take the time to stop and look more closely at this and we'll start to observe the way we talk to other people, the way we interact, relate with other people. You know, we'll be affected and depend on the quality of our mind state. Say when our mind um, has a sense of goodwill towards others, that will be reflected in our speech, our actions and the nature of our relationship with the people, the world around us, will probably go in a good way. Whereas if we uh, are acting based on more unskillful or negative intentions, based in, say, anger or fear or selfishness, then those actions, that speech, 
will be reflected in our behaviour that will bring a different kind of result. When we're careful what we think, what we say, what we do, we tend to be, um, when we're more careful in that way, we tend to have a better result in what we're doing in life. When we're more casual or careless, negligent in what we say, what we do, we tend to have a, a worse result. I'm just speaking very generally here, but you probably understand the, the principle that in the end we have to start being responsible for our own actions in life. Each individual has to be responsible for their own actions. This is what we call the law of karma, which is going on all the time. You can see it the way other people behave and the things that happen to them. We can also see it in our own lives, the way we behave and the things that happen to us. You know, any day of the week, when you fall into some kind of suffering, if you stop and take the time to look through it, look carefully at what's going on, you might notice where perhaps you've actually created some of that suffering for yourself, just through the way you acted, the way you spoke, the way you thought. This is something we have to really investigate, look more closely at. It's not something just to believe in, say just to believe what I say, but it's actually something to take away and think about, look more closely. And you'll probably find that there's some truth in this. You know, the more care and attention we give to the way we live, and the more we can find happiness and good results from what we're doing. Or the more careless we are with the way we live, well, we probably find the results of that are that we, we have more problems, more suffering in our life. It's like going back to that, um, what I mentioned earlier about tying your shoelace. If you tie your sho shoelace with a sense of care and attention, well, you'll probably tie your shoelace well, and you'll be able to wear your shoes well and go out and have no problems. But if you tie your shoelace carelessly, or you don't think about it, you don't look, you do it in a rush, or perhaps even you don't tie your shoelace at all, what happens? Well, you trip over them. <laughs> That's karma, isn't it? If we don't look after ourselves and what we're doing, then the results come back on us. If we're not careful what we say, what we do in our families, in our workplace, the way we live in the world, well, it comes back on us. This is the law of karma that the Buddha talked about. Now many people say, well, can we get rid of karma? Most people understand this and then they say, well, I've made a lot of bad karma in my life. I've done a lot of bad things because unfortunately we do sometimes make mistakes. We are careless. We sometimes do things that we regret. So people like to come and ask the monks and they say, well, can I get rid of my bad karma? Well, unfortunately, of course, you can't change the past. Nobody can do that because the past is the past. It's finished. And we haven't invented a time machine yet, so we can't travel back and undo the, the mistakes or the wrongs that we've done in the past. All we can do is maybe learn from the past. We can learn from our mistakes, gain some wisdom, some understanding from what we've done by thinking it through, wisely reflecting, and then maybe making a determination not to do that again and learning to how to improve ourselves, develop, develop ourselves in better ways for our own benefit, for the benefit of others. So we can't wash away our karma, we can't sort of 
May wave a magic wand, though the monks can't give a blessing, where you just get rid of your old karma, everything's back to normal and you start again. You can't do that. But you can make a resolution or a determination not to make more bad karma. And that's, you know, that's how you practice, isn't it? You're practicing in the present moment on a daily basis, learning to be more careful how you live, more heedful, more vigilant. Often we only do this when there's some danger or there's some real emergency. Like you notice in Japan recently with the tsunami and the earthquake, the first um, instruction that the government of Japan put out in the media for all the Japanese people was be vigilant, which makes sense, isn't it? Because they've got to be worried about future earthquakes, tsunamis and so on. So they're all being very vigilant and if there's any danger they all have to move to high ground or move out of harm's way, move out of a building or so on. But of course the rest of the time when there's no earthquakes, no tsunami, nobody's telling you to be vigilant. So we all tend to become a bit complacent, which probably as human beings is our biggest enemy, is we like to become complacent with life. We're not very careful, we're not very vigilant. So we often find ourselves falling into suffering and problems because we're not very careful what we do. Especially if there's no, no threat, no danger, well we tend to be very relaxed, even too relaxed to the point where we, we're not really considering very deeply what we're doing in life and then we wonder why sometimes we end up suffering. So this teaching of karma is helping us, it's helping us to look more closely at our life, our behaviour, what we're doing and to become more vigilant, more careful so that we can protect ourselves take more responsibility for our own lives and protect ourselves from coming into harm's way, from doing, saying or just thinking things that bring us harm and suffering. This is very much the compassion of the Buddha, the, the wisdom of the Buddha, teaching us how to be more vigilant, more careful and more understanding both of ourselves and then of other people to see the value of looking after our minds, taking more care, more time to maybe slow down a little bit, stop a little bit and look more carefully at our own minds so that we can look after them better and understand them better. It's like anything in your life, if you go through your life in a kind of a rush, a whirlwind of activity but you never really stop to think about what you're doing, very easy to to cause yourself stress and suffering, isn't it? You know, it's just like something very ordinary, like when you cross the road, say you cross the road out here by Flinders Station, a busy road. If you just run across that road without stopping and looking, well there's a high possibility that you'll get run over by a car. <laughs> and you wouldn't want that because it would hurt greatly or even put your life at risk. So what do you do when you cross the road? You always stop, and you look, left, right, and then you go across if it's free, if, it, if there's no cars coming. So this teaching on karma is a bit like that. You know, when we were young, our parents taught us to stop and look when we cross the road. Well, this teaching on karma is telling us to stop and look, but not just when we're young, when we're middle-aged or when we're old-aged, whatever your age, it doesn't matter. 
we can all afford to stop and look a little bit more closely. You know, not always get caught up in the rush of life, the rush of activity. Again, this is one of the sort of the problems of the modern age. One of the, the things we do become complacent about is the fact that there's so much to do. The demands of our work, the demands of our social life, the demands of everything that society brings to us. We all now tend to be very, very busy. Technology makes us very busy, doesn't it? You know, it's very, there's not a moment to spare. We've got, always got a phone to be on, an iPad to be typing into, somewhere to be driving to, another activity to go. Whether it's your free time, you might say your downtime is full of uh, activities that you have to do. If it's your work, there's a lot of pressure to get many tasks finished within your day. So no wonder people are getting very stressed. They end up getting very worked up. They get very upset, disappointed with themselves. They get disappointed with their expectations of life. They find themselves pressured to the point where they're not enjoying life very easily. So the, um, any doctor will tell you, even though we're a materially well-off country, we actually have a lot of mental illness based on stress, depression, anxiety and so on. One simple way to remedy this, one, one thing that would help greatly, is also learning how to slow down a bit. Take time to stop and look more deeply at your life. Maybe to find out what is uh, your priority in life. If you're really going to look after your own mind and your state of mind, then that takes some time, doesn't it? It takes some time, a willingness to actually stop and look at your mind a bit more. If you're just going through the rush of life, you, know, you haven't even got time to do you know, important things, you're certainly not going to have time to stop and look at your own mind. Often it, it takes some emergency before we do that, isn't it? It takes a tsunami or an earthquake, or it maybe takes some personal suffering, like when we fall ill and we get seriously ill. It's only then that we stop and think about what is important in life, isn't it? But really we don't have to wait for that moment. We can also you know, take our time in life just to stop and look more deeply into our own mind and take more care of it. And meditation is one of those activities or practices that can help us do that. So for the next period, the, according to the program, we have now have a period of um, quiet meditation. So if you've never done meditation before, I'll give you some words of instruction as we do this. If you have done it before, or just do the meditation that you're used to, and take the time just to be quiet. Um, just sit where you are in your chair. For those of you who've never done meditation before, the important thing that Buddha always said is to sit up straight, whether you're on the floor like me or sitting in a chair. Try to sit up straight so you're putting some energy into your posture. Next thing is to close your eyes and you can just listen to the um, words that I'm saying just for guidance. 
And the first thing you do as you close your eyes is just bring your attention to the top of your head. Try and notice how your head is feeling from the very top of the head. Start to sweep the attention down from the top of the head to your forehead, to your nose, your cheeks, your ears, down to your chin. And as we're doing this, as you're listening to the sound of my words, just try to relax any muscles in your face that you might feel are tense. And send your awareness, your attention further down to your neck, your shoulders. If you feel any tension in the muscles in your neck and your shoulders, just relax them. Send your attention down your right arm to your fingertips. Then send your attention down from your shoulder down your left arm to your left fingertips. Then bring your attention to your chest, the centre of your chest. See how it feels. If it feels tense, just relax it. Bring the attention down to your abdomen. Notice the rising and falling of your abdomen as you're breathing. Down to your waist. Then feel how your legs feel, experience the feeling of your right legs and your attention down your right leg to the knee then to the foot. Then your left leg from the waist down to the knee, down to the foot. Then relax your leg muscles, then start to bring your attention back up the legs to the waist again. Back up to your chest. Notice your left arm, your right arm. Back up to your neck, back up to your face, and to the top of the head. So all you're doing at this time is just becoming aware of how your body is feeling right now, in this present moment. If you notice any tension, any stressful feelings, just try and relax. Mentally, tell yourself to relax and physically try to relax the muscles. And 
just become more familiar with yourself, how you're feeling right now. Get to know yourself. Some people have never even done this in their life. They've never taken the time to stop and notice how they're feeling. But at this time you can do that. So you're making friends with yourself. The next step in this meditation is to take your attention and place it at the tip of your nostrils. Try and find the feeling of the breath, the breathing, as you breathe in at the tip of your nostrils. Find that feeling as the breath is going in and as the breath is going out. If you find it difficult to locate that feeling, just breathe in a little bit more deeply than normal. So breathe in deeply, breathe out deeply. And just try and notice the feeling of the air rushing in at the tip of your nostrils rushing out again. Then the next step is just to allow the breath to flow naturally. You don't have to force it to be deep or long. Just allow it to flow naturally at its own pace. But as you breathe in, you may silently count one in your mind, one in-breath, one inhalation. As you breathe out, count one, one exhalation. As you breathe in again, count two. As you breathe out again, count two. As you breathe in again, count three. As you breathe out again, count three. The counting is just to help you keep your attention on the breath. And this is bringing up this quality of mindful awareness, knowing your own mind in the present moment by focusing its attention on the breath, knowing the in-breath, knowing the out-breath. Now your duty or your task at this point is just to know the breathing, nothing else. So if you find that after one or two in-breaths, out-breaths, your mind wanders off, you start becoming distracted. If you open your eyes or if you're thinking about something else, or if you hear a sound and you're distracted by that sound. Just remind yourself gently to go back to the in-breath and start counting number one again. And your aim in this meditation is just to be mindful of ten in-breaths and ten out-breaths 
in succession without losing your awareness. If you do lose your awareness, just remind yourself by asking the question, what am I doing now? And then answer yourself, oh, I am practicing mindfulness of the breathing, I'm meditating on the breathing. Bring your attention back to the tip of your nostrils and restart the counting at one. So keep putting attention on the in-breath, the out-breath, the tip of your nostrils. Counting one, one in-breath, one out-breath, two in-breaths, two out-breaths, and so on, until you reach ten. If you do reach ten, then just start back at one again. The purpose of the exercise is just to bring you more concentration, more self-awareness, so that you can see your mind or know your mind in the present moment without being distracted, without getting lost into thinking about other things, other places, other times. Just keep reminding yourself to relax. Let go of all these other distracting thoughts. Just bring your mind to the present moment. You don't have to worry about anything else at this time. You don't have to be concerned about anything else at this time. Just bring your mind to the present moment. Relax and keep following the feeling of the in-breath and the out-breath. We'll just do this for a little while longer. I'll stop talking and you can just see if you can keep concentrating your mind on the breath until I give you the signal to stop.
you find your mind is distracted by the sounds around you, just remind yourself to turn your attention back to the feeling of the breath and the counting, one in breath, one out breath.
ให้ให้ยกมือถามก็ได้ครับผมมีไม้อยู่ตัวนึงมีไม้เอาโอเคอ่าออฟ
walking, the movement of the feet, and of course, the mind, keeping your attention on your own mind as you walk. Then uh, at six o'clock in the evening, we don't have an evening meal for this month. We don't, we're not allowed to eat after midday, but we do come together for uh, a drink. We have, uh, can have drinks like tea or coffee or fruit juice. And then in the evening, we often have a meditation session again in our hall, a group meditation for an hour or so, seven to eight. Then uh, we have chanting again. And sometimes we have some teaching, either a talk, a lecture, uh, or a reading. And that might finish by about nine o'clock. And then we have free time, so the monks will disperse, go back to their dwelling places. So not every day is exactly the same, but that's a typical day in the monastery. So for a monk, Buddhist monk, you might actually have many, many hours available for the practice of meditation. There's a certain amount of group meditation, a few hours a day, but then individuals might do many more hours than that. It just depends on the individual, how they schedule their day. And some monks might meditate for many, many hours. If they find their meditation is going well, their mindfulness is improving, they're becoming more peaceful, they might continue on for many hours. And just as you'll find if you practice meditation, you know, sometimes you get quite peaceful and you want to do it, you want to continue doing it, so you might do it for a long time, maybe for an hour. You might just sit quietly, meditating for an hour, developing this concentrated awareness of your own breathing, learning to let go of all the distracting thoughts, just bring up this sense of self-awareness. Other times you might find your meditation very difficult and whatever you do it just seems like your mind is just racing away thinking about many things. Or you might have a strong emotion come up, you might be very upset about something or agitated about something, worried about something. It just depends, doesn't it? Those times when the mind isn't peaceful, those are the times one has to be more patient in the meditation and put more effort in uh, to work with that agitated mind state. But what you find if you practice meditation regularly, often, is that you can learn to get more clarity in your mind, even through some of the most extreme states of emotional turmoil. You can gain some clarity and awareness and even let go of them, completely free your mind from some of the worst kinds of mental stress, agitation, emotional disturbance and so on. But it does take some effort. So meditation is something you might practice regularly. I would advise if you're interested, try to practice a little bit regularly on a daily basis, at least maybe 10, 15 minutes a day, even more if you find it helpful. And as you practice regularly, you'll get better at it. Just like anything in life, you'll become more skilled, more experienced in, in the practice of meditation. And you'll finally get more benefit from it. And the benefit is that you maybe start to have a little bit more self-control, more um, of a sense of inner calm. And that you can use at different times, say if you're 
having something stressful in your life to do with your work, your relationship, whatever it may be, maybe you've fallen ill or had some misfortune in your life. If you have a way where you can quietly meditate and calm your mind, then that's a great relief. We call it a refuge. A refuge is something you can do at times of stress. You go to that practice of meditation just to calm your mind down a little bit. So you might find if you meditate regularly, your experiences that with this increased self-control, maybe you lose your temper less often, less, less often, and not quite as strongly as you used to. Maybe you find you're more content in your life. Maybe you find you're less agitated, anxious about things and so on. Most people who meditate often, they find these are the kind of results that come. So, you know, often people, it becomes a part of their life, a regular thing that they want to do every day, often. And if they don't do it, then it's like something's missing. But this is really something you have to experience for yourself. You have to learn and find out for yourself through your own practice. The other thing perhaps important is to see that even though we, we call meditation, say something like this, where you sit down, cross-legged, watch your breathing go in and out in a, in a formal way, as a formal exercise, there's also the practice of just mindful awareness, self-awareness in daily life, whatever you're doing, whether you're sitting cross-legged like this, or whether you're walking around doing your daily activities in your family, or at work, or you're just going shopping, or you've got free time, your mind goes with you wherever you are, whatever you're doing. So you always have the opportunity just to watch your mind become more aware of how you're thinking, what you're saying, what you're doing. And you realize the more you practice this self-awareness, then the more it helps you to do what you have to do in life. If you have a job of work to do, you might do it better because you're more aware, more concentrated, more mindful. Your relationships with other people might improve because you're more aware, you become more sensitive to them, so you're more able to relate to them in a better way and so on. There are many, many subtle and obvious benefits that come through the practice of meditation, but perhaps more than I can explain here now because we've come to the end of our period. So, unless there's any more burning questions, does anybody else have any questions? One more, maybe we'll have, this is the last question. have a uh, short definition of karma? A short definition of karma, okay. The question was, do I have a short definition of karma? So I, I think I mentioned it earlier, like the word karma literally means action. But when we talk about action, we talk about action on three levels. The first and most important is mental action. What you're thinking, your attitudes, your thoughts, they're a kind of action because they determine how we feel, your mood, your emotional state, 
what you're going to do in life all begins as a thought first. So mental action is karma. Verbal action, what you say, speech, which comes first from your thought and then it becomes verbalized as your speech. So verbal action and then physical action, what you do with your body, the things you do in life, where you go, what you do, the activities you do. But when we talk about action, that's not the end of the story. The other half of karma is result, the result of the action, or the consequence of the action. So the teaching on karma is one of cause and result, cause and consequence, cause and effect. So it's a very scientific teaching, you might say, in that one can study this in a very objective, very careful and detailed way in one's own life and in the world around you. You can see cause and result at work according to the actions that people perform in their lives. So for ourselves we can learn what mental actions bring what results, what brings you happiness and joy, what brings you suffering in terms of your mental activity, your verbal activity, your physical activity. So perhaps in summary, because I have to finish now, um, the question, can I give a short summary of karma? So I'll give you a very short, brief description that maybe is enough to show you. Um, give you two comparisons. Say you were to go out of this room here, this hall, out into the crowd, and the first person you meet, you walk up to them, and you punch them on the nose. That result that you get from that action, whatever they do next, will be your karma. So if they punch you back, well that's your karma, that's the result of that action. Or if they run away, run away screaming, call a policeman, whatever. That's karma, isn't it? What you do, it creates its cause, it brings a consequence, brings an action, a reaction. Or similarly, if you were to go out of this hall and you bring out $10 note, and the first person you see, total stranger, you give that $10 note to them and say, here is a gift for you, please take this. I want to give this gift to you, and then you walk away. That's another kind of karma, a totally different mind state, totally different kind of action, and probably will bring you a totally different result. Uh, you'll probably feel happy about that kind act, and hopefully that person will feel happy about that kind act. So from that you can extrapolate or build a picture of what karma is like, how it's affecting us, what we do, what we think, what we say, what we do, every day, every moment of every day is constantly bringing results back to us. So if you live in a family and you're kind to your family members and you help them, they'll probably be happy with you and you have a good, successful family life, a happy family life. If you're unkind to your family members, you're selfish, you're mean, you're nasty to them, well they'll probably hate you and you'll have a lot of problems. That's a generalization, but that's you know, how karma works, isn't it? Whether it's on the individual level, in a family, in a society, or even between groups of people like different countries, 
if different countries, different groups of people treat each other well, with respect, with kindness, with tolerance, well generally those groups of people, those countries will have good relationships. When they lose their sense of mutual respect, kindness, tolerance, well then you start to have conflict or even war. So you can see karma is at work, whether it's on an individual basis or collections of individuals. You can learn about karma every day. So I think I've come to the end of my time. I'm going to have to finish there. But I hope uh, if there's been anything I've said that's useful, may you take it away and may it be of benefit to you in your own lives. Um, if what I've said is not very useful to you, that's fine. You just leave my words here. You don't have to take them home with you, just leave them here and you can go away a free person. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I'll leave it there and wish you all well and I hope you enjoy your day.